0: On today's episode, meet Teresa Moore, Director at a Greener Festival and co-founder of Green Events and Innovations Conference. I'm your host, Sylvia Morn, and you're listening to the Music Secrets Exposed podcast. Today in the podcast, I have an exciting lady with me. Her name is Teresa Moore. She's director of the Greener Festival. I think I've that titled correctly, Greener Festival. Yes. A, a good name because it's something, as we were chatting before the interview, you don't think about what happens alongside events in the outdoors, even sometimes in the indoor environments. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Sylvia.
0: Thank you. Now, you have a background, Teresa, in philosophy you've got a master of arts degree it took you into the arena of doing tv work as a a young person and then you went into academia for a while and then after that then you came out of in in you know academia and working in that environment for various reasons tell us your story from the beginning so you firstly (laughs) studied philosophy
1: that's interesting um so my first degree is in philosophy um Like some things in my life, not particularly planned. Um, I started doing a joint politics and philosophy, but very quickly found I absolutely loved philosophy, dropped the politics bit um, and, uh, yeah, focused on that and got a degree in philosophy. And I think that's something about the way that that subject um, trains your mind to think about things has really stuck with me. Um, all my life really um, in everything I do so um, I did go on at a later point to do a master's uh, and now I'm currently doing a PhD in sustainable event management and one thing I would say what I've often found is that if you if I've done something at some point in my life it contributes to what I do later on in my life so that philosophy um, degree has helped me in in a number of different ways, but I am I found myself using it in my PhD talking, and it's hard to see it, but you know, uh, focusing on sustainable event management, I've introduced quite a lot of philosophical approaches to um, the study of that that issue as well. So, um, yeah, for for listeners, whatever you do, will contribute you know, is always of benefit. There's always something that will happen later in your life that you can use what you did earlier. Well, it's like this, I
0: suppose, skills build up over time and they all come into use. But we were discussing before the interview of how philosophy helps you to look at the root of any argument, for example, and clear the clutter. Can you just talk more about that? Because I think that's such a useful skill.
1: Yes, so so when you're confronted with, um, it's not just academic problems, with problems in everyday life, for example, I'm currently looking at the 10 waste problem at festivals. Um, what's important and what philosophy trains you to do is to really dig down and, and understand the problem for what it is rather than all the noise around it. Um, so very often you know when people leave their tents at festivals they say, oh I left it because it was broken, which is one reason, but it's not the only reason and it doesn't tell you much about um, sort of how people behave in general with regard to this problem at festivals, for example. So. You know, it is a really useful training to to try and um, see things more clearly, get rid of red herrings and just be able to spot what the problem actually is rather than all the noise around it. So like.
0: in, your, in your work, you focus on the back, what I would say in, in layman's language, the back end of festival management, the things that people don't think about, they perhaps complain about, you know. So can you talk more about the back end management that you look at and what happens around festivals and where you're trying to make an impact.
1: OK, so a greener festival we started in 2006 and our aim has always been um, starting with music festivals to help them understand um, their environmental impact and then um, to to help them to introduce better ways of doing things to reduce that environmental impact. And as I said, we started with music festivals, as it turns out, Um, since 2006, we gradually developed and found that music festivals were a bit ahead of the game in many respects and have tried out many things that other event sector um, businesses have only in the last few years realised that they've got something to learn from the music festival and that they should be looking at some of these issues and trying out some of the solutions. So our work has moved from music festivals to right across the event industry, but certainly um, for events and for music festivals, we're probably what you might call the supplier end of the chain in terms of we're providing a service to the festival organizers, um, which um, you know increasingly festival audiences say they want the festival organizers to do something about. Um, So, you know, on a sort of global scale, it's, well, they want the festival to um, reduce its environmental impact, Um, they want the festival to do something about waste, they want the festival to do something about food, you know, that's another area um, that uh, can create quite an environmental impact, um, whether it's food waste and I can tell you a bit more about food waste in a minute. Um, or whether it's, you know, inedible food waste or edible food waste. There's tons of food, which is perfectly edible, left after a festival.
0: My goodness, I didn't uh, know that.
1: also quite shocking, yeah. Um, so we're, we're sort of, uh, we get invited in. We're asked to come in. We don't uh, force our way in, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, It's when a a festival or an an event uh, thinks they want to actually focus on the issues around the environmental impact of their event and they want some help. They want somebody to come in and have a look at what they're doing. Some events are already quite a long way down the road, but they need another pair of eyes in a way to just assess what it is they're doing, whether it works. Um, whether what they think they're doing is actually what they are doing sometimes. Um, that's a little bit of the philosophical part about it, just analysing what's going on. Um, so, um, yeah, and that, that's that been the mainstay of our business for up until now, but it's not the only thing that we actually do. Um, just to give you a little bit of history, in 2015, We took some time out to reassess um, what we were doing, um, whether festivals felt they still needed um, us to go in and and advise them and assess their environmental uh, initiatives. That was a resounding yes. Um, we also realised that over the years, we'd learnt an awful lot more, as had the industry and the world learned an awful lot more about what created environmental impacts. And actually, we needed to get on and do something about it. Um, so we completely revised our um, criteria for assessment. That was all rewritten. Um, and in the past, we would send people out who are passionate, who who knew the issues, but we decided we needed to professionalize the training for those people because actually it was getting a lot more sophisticated as we'd learned more. Um, So we introduced our own assessor training. So anybody who wants to um, become an assessor with the Greener Festival um, has to complete our training um, because there wasn't anything else out there to train them in. Another thing that we did was understand that um, this demand, we've always been pretty international as an organization um, and demand has come from all over the world for our services. And we've grown in a slightly different way to most organizations in that we uh, our structure is a network. It's a network of people all over the world. So we don't have uh, an office and, and lots of people employed as such um, we have core team but you know we train our assessors increasingly online all over the world um and that helps to reduce our own carbon footprint because the last thing we want to be doing is jetting about the place you know we we need to be mindful of what we're about
0: yeah it would yeah. make sense yeah yeah, yeah.
1: so um yeah, so that's been the core of it. We we worked, moved into training. We also then started to move into consultancy and that's where the Greenpeace thing came up. So um, as I said, I'm doing a PhD in sustainable event management. My focus is on tent waste and behaviour change. And I am a co-founder of a conference called Green Events and Innovations. Um, and I decided to... Uh, sort of just put some of my findings out to industry and see what the response was. And in the audience happened to be the head of UK events for Greenpeace, um, approached me afterwards and said, well, I've not heard anything like this before. Um, We're setting up for something called EcoCamp, a campsite at Download Festival. Would you give us some advice on how to do it? Um, which I did, actually, and um, uh, everything from how they communicated it to what needed to be put in place actually on the campsite and how how it had to be run. And they were brilliant. They pretty much took on board everything that I suggested, which when you're a researcher and you're, you're it tends to be that you're working theoretically, to yes. be able to go out and put that research into practice was quite an amazing opportunity. So Quite
0: exciting to see it come to fruition, I suppose, too. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, so that was originally intended to be a three-year pilot scheme. Um, obviously, COVID has interrupted that. Um, and it was with Download Festival. The EcoCamp site was at Download Festival, which didn't run again this year because of COVID it's too early in the season at the time Um, but um, yeah it was a fantastic opportunity so I did go down to the site I spoke to uh the campers on the site to see what they thought of of what had been put in place um and it was all you know it was all good news actually very positive and importantly not one single tent was left behind so
0: fantastic so your your <laughs> research really paid off i mean all that implementation yeah. of what you discovered all those years of research fantastic yeah. yeah so would you say like when you look at this whole idea about waste management at events to me it would start at kids level re-educating them as well as handling the ongoing problem because there's two sides to the argument if i'm right here you've mm. got educating kids coming into our world now if you will the broader world Mm. of music events and so forth, Mm. but there's also this um, huge task of bringing the reality of what people do and placing it in front of them to make them aware of what the problems are and how to break the habits, which is a very tough thing to do. Mm. So, I mean, how do you go about that? Is it, do you use lots of signage at events? Do you use lots of positioning of things at events to try and guide people the right direction?
1: um i i think it's it's a combination of quite a lot of things actually and it will be slightly different for different events with different audiences um and this applies to gigs as well you know venue-based gigs as well as festivals um just so happens i've looked at the pro- this waste problem at festivals but there has been a waste problem at gigs uh you know venues in and around venues um and, and um, so it's not just about festivals, but um, so it's about who the audience is. Um, we need to understand it's often said that um, this is a sort of teenage problem, that, you know, the waste is associated with those festivals that are full of teenagers. Actually, that's not true. It's right across the board. So, um, where you've got festivals with a a much broader age group, you still have a temp-based problem. So the idea that it's all teenagers is is not the case, actually, although you'll find it at other events with a much broader uh, range of people. Um, It's important, I think, that um, there's a joined-up approach. So it's not you know, you are looking to change the behaviour of audiences and signage is not enough on its own. Um, The promoter, the organiser needs to be involved in this, um, but also, you know, the artist. So I was talking to you a little bit earlier about this initiative that we've just launched actually with uh, Live, Live UK, which is a sort of coalition of, Aspects of the music industry from promoters to artists to tour managers to venues, trying to bring the whole industry together to promote greener touring. So, um, uh, bands like, you know, big bands like Coldplay, for example, announced I think it was 2019 now that they would not be touring to promote their latest album um, until they could find a way of doing it carbon. Carbon neutrally, I think they actually use the word um, carbon negatively. So they wanted to withdraw carbon from the atmosphere rather than put more into it. So, been uh, you know that was a wake-up call. Billie Eilish has made um, statements. Um, a number of bands, Massive Attack, have just had a big research problem looking uh, sorry project looking at their touring and how to make that greener. Um, so we've launched the Greener Touring and we've been out on the road um, looking at, you know, the elements that um, that can be improved to make touring greener and now, assessing it.
0: Yeah. The other thing I'm thinking is, is there career opportunities here for people who love music and adore music and want to be involved in the world in some way, but they know because of COVID well, being a performer is ugh, it's it's good it it you can still perform. I'm not saying that's not the possible, but to supplement their income perhaps as a performer are there things they can do within this whole arena of festivals and so forth
1: um well there are i mean there's a huge range of um opportunities um in the music industry which aren't the sort of main core performance or songwriting um obviously, you can work in other um adjacent uh areas you know we talked about writing music for gaming uh writing music for film or television or adverts we talked a little bit about this thing called sonic branding which is coming up with sort of um uh very you know three notes that are very recognizable and are are related to products and things um I think these days, and perhaps what COVID certainly has taught our business, uh, and I hear this over and over again, is that you have to be ready to diversify and go into other areas, related areas perhaps, but you can't just do one thing. I think musicians have already learned this because um, obviously the, the income they can make unless you're very big from recorded music has gone down and down and down.
0: Oh, yes, it has. Um, uh,
1: You know, unless again, you're a big artist, it's quite hard to get gigs and to make music from live. Um, But that has been a mainstay of income. And so I think, you know, a lot of musicians out there have understood, actually, that, you know, if they're going to survive and carry on doing what they love, They are going to have to diversify and try and do other things as well. So in
0: in your world of, you know, helping festivals to be greener, okay, Mm. Mm. are there ways that musicians can be involved in their hope of being a good performer, but Mm. also merging it with helping the environment in the musical sense, like helping festivals to be more green? Are there career opportunities in that area specifically?
1: Um, Well, there's obviously uh, artists can play a big role in messaging. So, you know, if they have a fan base, they can influence that fan base. Um, and, you know, a lot of bands that may not be huge bands have their own fan base that they've built up through a lot of hard work. Um, they can, you know, support initiatives, be aware of it to, you know, tell tell their fan base about it, get involved in um, things like greener touring, for example. Um, there's something called an artist green rider, which is becoming a little bit more popular now as well, where, you know, in, in terms of a contract, you add in things that you know you would like to see at the venue it might be the elimination of plastic bottles for example um could be i don't know plant-based food something like that um there's quite a lot of things that the artist can do as a musician to influence their audience and and be part of this bigger joined up picture um as yeah
0: that's interesting. So before the interview, we were just talking about copyright advice. Now, you have mm-hmm. some knowledge concerning the law surrounding contracts and artists, yeah. what they sign into and with record companies and how there have been horror stories of some artists signing contracts that have caused them long term issues ending up that they have to have to pay money that, back to their record group that they signed up with and so forth the record label or whatever so can you just speak to that can you give some advice to young musicians who might have created something that might want to protect their intellectual property and also talk about the importance of reading the small printing contracts and tell some stories about this topic
1: okay well I, I think that um you know when you're passionate about your music and you want to get it out there the, um, the tendency or the temptation is when somebody offers you a contract is to just grab it with both hands. You know, at last somebody's listening to me and I'm going to get my music out there. But um, I think the advice is, and this is through some very painful experiences of lots, lots of artists that you don't rush at it. You actually have a look and see what it is that um, is being offered, what the deal is, rather than just signing without knowing what the deal is, which is not uncommon, to be honest. Um, You need to understand what it is you're signing. So, you know, for example, there have been examples where bands have owed the label money because the contract said um, that uh, they had to repay the label's investment in the marketing, in the sort of infrastructure they were providing to promote the band, Um, They had to repay that out of their performance income, Um, you know, and and that's been some contracts. So some artists have found that they've been out of pocket, even though they've been earning money and haven't been able to understand why they haven't seen a penny of it.
0: And to be honest, Um, when they're on tour, they work so hard a lot of the time, you know, they're going night after night.
1: Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, it's true that uh, record labels do take a risk and not all artists Um, sort of are successful Um, but I think it you know to be fair it's got to be a case of just being really looking at the small print and understanding what it is you're actually signing up for Mm -hmm. when will you start making an income out of this if you do play gigs you know how much money will you owe what what is their responsibility what's yours And what does that mean in terms of trying to earn a living which is quite hard you know for starting musicians so it um it's it's really important not to rush into it but to get some good advice um or have somebody else you know take a look at the deal and just point out what the downside is as opposed to the upside
0: um, yeah so tr- if if you can get legal advice is what you're saying really i suppose
1: mm, yeah definitely and Perfect. Some, some some music lawyers will I know a handful who will take on um, artists pro bono, so they will help them get a leg up in terms of those very early contracts. Obviously, with with the idea that you know they may well then, once they've they started earning, um, pay for the services. But there are some very good music lawyers out there who will do that, who
0: understand um, the the nature of their business. Now, I just want to dig into this little fascination of yours. You mentioned it earlier, sonic branding. Can you explain what that, I think it's interesting. Can you explain what that is?
1: Well, as I've sort of gone through, you know, my experience of the music industry, sometimes you come across things that I've never heard of that. And that's really interesting. So a few years ago, I came across a lady actually, whose whole business is around sonic branding. And this is about um, uh, rights to um, these these tunes. Now they're not really tunes; they're usually two or three notes. So, if you think about Intel, um, the the computer people, they have I think it's three notes, and you recognise that it's Intel, yes, um, just by hearing the notes. That is actually sonic branding, and somebody has created that. So you've had a creative produce that because not all three notes would be, you know, you wouldn't hear it in the same way. They wouldn't make that sort of mark. Um, And there are rights attached to producing these sonic brands. So um, it's one of those things that absolutely fascinated me because it's something that we're aware of if you think about it. Mm And the more you think about it, the more sonic brands you come, you know, you're reminded of, you come That's across. Right. Yeah. But actually, you know, there are people out there who are who are creating these sonic brands, um, and and it's another avenue, you know, um, where people can earn some money. They will earn. But you know, it's it's, it's this
0: whole technology. technological world is opening up so many title job titles that I've never heard of before. I think everybody's yeah. kind of, well, what's that job about? Or what's this job about? They say, you know, yeah. it's, it's a new education all to itself. And it changes so fast from one, you know, genre of technology to the next move on in technology. There's all these developments that happening so fast. Very interesting. So, Teresa, where can people find you and how can they help? More importantly, in terms of the environment surrounding festivals, when they're organizing them, what can people do and how can they find out more about what you do?
1: Um, so, we have a website, agreenafestival.com, and we have lots of information on there about what we do. Um, we also have what we call our juicy stats, so we produce um, um, uh, some statistical data drawn from all the events that we've assessed in a year, looking at the key impacts that from those events, things like transport, things like energy, things like waste. Um, so we can see whether there are any patterns year on year. So there's lots of stats in there. Tells us about it. Tells you about all the well, not all, but a lot of the organisations that we worked in, and, and you may well recognise many of the festivals, for example. But as I said, lots of other organisations as well. We we look at um, uh, mass participation events, for example. Um, venues. We've got our greener venue. Certification. So we're work, working with some of the biggest venues in the UK at the moment um, to help them. Uh, greener Touring, the Greener Rider, and that explains what, the, what that is as part of an artist contract and what sort of things can a Greener Rider actually form in your contract, what they can say. Um, so there's lots and lots of information available on our website. Um, yeah and we talk about our own research and, consulting. and
0: what is your website address
1: so it's all one word a com.
0: simple as that a greenerfestival.com that. yeah yeah lovely yeah. well listen um, it's been a very educational interview for me uh-huh. listening to you speaking about this topic because i remember seeing on um, our local TV station here in Ireland one year, and as well before COVID about the cleanup operation that was happening after Glastonbury Festival in England. I was mm-hmm. shocked at the amount of machinery they needed, at the amount mm-hmm. of manpower they needed just to get the place back to an operating farm because it's held on farmland in that area. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed, mm-hmm. I was absolutely amazed at the efforts that have to go into the cleanup operation. And then when you look at the broader environment and you know that there's these big issues with plastics, um, then you have the food issue as well. It's, it's a yeah. big task. It's, it's really an important, very important task that many people don't think about.
1: And I think that um, the music industry in particular is in a special place in that it has the potential to influence its audiences and really it should be influencing its audiences. So if all the industries that, you know, we have come together, including the music industry, which can take a lead in these things, Um, to influence people in general that's really important to making a huge difference you know each each industry plays its part and as I said I think the music industry is very well placed to be quite you know pretty influential in this in a way that other industries perhaps aren't and
0: just one final question before we complete this interview Um, classical music and we'll say popular music are two very different genres. And there have been Mm. stories told to me about the positive effects that classical music has had in reducing vandalism studies surrounding all of that. For example, there was one story I heard recently of classical music being played at a McDonald's outlet in Texas, located beside a bus station where a lot of homeless people are, you know, frequenting. And what the classical music was played for was to just keep down vandalism and delinquenism. And the same actually has been used in my local city here at a car park in the middle of the city to try and maintain the same kind of uh, ideas. Studies and all of, I believe, have been, you know, really looking at all of this. And I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if you compare two genres of music Mm -hmm. and you say, right, we have somebody like, I don't know, some heavy metal or popular music or something and then you look at a classical music festival hmm. Are, is there any difference in how people act in terms of what they leave behind or is it just the same across the board
1: um good question uh, to some extent it's the audience in the event itself uh, as i've already said but actually um if it was a general population, probably not a great deal of difference. You know, we find waste, waste everywhere. Um, some audiences are definitely more conscientious than others, um, and that does depend on. You know, if if you go to a um, something a festival called Green Gathering, for example, everybody's on board. That's what it's. It's about they know what it's about um and so you won't get the sorts of issues because it's it's sort of in ground into the festival itself and that's the nature of the audience as well um it's hard to be very um generic about this and say it's yeah it's that or it's that. um so that audience is really important um i think that um whole thing about does i mean that needs to be studied actually we know that for example there has been research that classical music when you um can calm you down if you if you drive with sort of very fast music going on it makes you drive faster so people do respond to music in terms of their behavior whether the type of music can influence behavior in terms of say things like waste i don't know well, I think that's a really interesting question. And I, I think it is it
0: because um, at the moment I'm involved with a number of people looking at the whole idea of taking musical, or sorry, classical music out of the concert hall and bringing it down to street level in layman's yeah, language, yeah. and yeah. you know bringing it out of the archives of music, if you will, and bring it back yeah. into everybody's ear sight, if that if that's yeah. a word. Um, So that's why I'm asking the question, because it seems Mm. that there's so (laughs) much positives linked in with classical music and I'm not reducing the quality of other genres of music. It's just because it's an art form that has been around for 300 years. It's Mm. very closely connected with the higher echelons of society in many ways, in many places. And I'm just wondering, is there a difference there? So I think there is a career choice for somebody to undertake research
1: <laughs> there is one thing i would say is that um, at quite a lot of music festivals um you'll find people who never leave the campsite so okay. they go to the music festival and they spend all their time on the campsite so and
0: typically a- typically how long is a musical festival
1: so it can be two to five days that's probably the average um so five days moon. is
0: a long time to manage all that waste
1: it's a huge amount, yes. Um I you thought. know it, there's, usually people will arrive say on the Wednesday and they'll leave on the Sunday or the Monday morning. So that is a long time, you know, in yes. terms of if you've got tens of thousands of people mm. there particularly. Um yeah. So
0: just just to give people an idea of Glastonbury, that's probably would it be the most famous festival in England? One of the most famous, I would say,
1: I think what's, it is.
0: Yeah, the probably iconic, is the well, iconic it? festival. Yeah, yeah, it is really. Yeah. So um, what's the attendance numbers there in normal times before COVID? What were the attendance numbers? How big is it? How long is it held for? Well,
1: I think it was about one hundred and seventy five thousand on average. I mean, it's the size of a, a small city almost. Um, That's incredible. It, Huge, it is huge. About one hundred and seventy-five thousand, and it has that same pattern. You know, you arrive. I think the whole thing starts on the Thursday. You can arrive on the Wednesday. It's finished by Sunday night, and people will often stay over and leave on the Monday morning. Um, that's a sort of fairly traditional pattern for uh, festival pendants. Right. So yeah. But it that's, is it's, so. It's a
0: huge task. So what you're saying is the management end of that festival. Now, I know we're talking about the biggest one now. We have to be fair, but that's a colossal job to look after something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they have had have many years of experience, of course, but it is it is massive. It's a massive undertaking, and I think it's one of those things that um, perhaps society in general underestimates the skills of um, of sort of creating and running big events. And we are we have those skills hugely in the UK. Um, and we've led the way in a, in a number of different areas. But in general, wherever you are in the world, um, actually the, that undertaking of putting on, particularly an outdoor event in on a greenfield site where you have to bring in all the infrastructure, there's nothing there, and then you set the whole thing up you, you have your content, your artists, whatever it is, and then you break it all down. You might have 100,000 people there. You've got to manage all of them as well. You've got all the crew. Some of these events have a massive number of people working on the festival, can be in the thousands, whether it's crew, it's production, it's voluntary people, you know, security, it's so on and so forth. Um, it is a massive undertaking and the skill of putting that on successfully should not be ignored it's a huge it shouldn't and I mean
0: it's it's a very it seems to me that once this pandemic sort of uh hopefully it passes or it's starting to pass we don't know but Mm. um the tone that I'm hearing in the media is that we're in recovery now I just heard yesterday Mm. that um there's a five-day lockdown in New Zealand Delta variant but however (laughs) Which yes. is worrying. But however, what I would say is, I mean, it seems to be a very justified and interesting career choice for people who want to work in the music industry and to become part of such companies that run events. It's actually a really interesting um, career choice for people to to get into because it's it's so wide open. There's so many tasks that have to be undertaken for such huge events. I mean, it, you can take your career where you'd like to go, really, I would imagine, in such a place.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is. Yes, definitely. It is incredibly hard work for, you know, most people involved. It's not nine to five by any means. Um, So it's, it's, but, you know, there are people, lots of people who love events, um, love music festivals and love being involved in staging them. You know, that's why we had a burgeoning industry of uh, music festivals with more and more coming along. I think the future, at the moment is looking like a smaller festival rather than, you know, another 175,000 type one, so more boutique type festival. And when you say
0: boutique festival, what kind of numbers are you talking of?
1: uh probably something 10 000 to 20,000.
0: That's still sort of an undertaking. That's still a that's, lot. that's, that's still a big lot. undertaking.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah. but in the scale of, you know, festivals sort of the well-known ones mm-hmm. are probably 50,000 upwards and that's classed as a large festival and then you've got the mediums. Maybe, you know, it could even be a bit smaller, 5,000, something like that.
0: Excuse me. I think when you put the numbers into it, you start to realise, oh, my goodness, if the waste isn't managed, you've got a huge (laughs) issue ensuing. Mm. And then you think about the food and all the packaging that surrounds all the food and where does it come from and all this kind of stuff and the amount of energy that consumes on site, that must be another big consideration as well.
1: Yeah. And it's part of part of this process of, of you know people trying to get people to take stuff home, not bring as much. So we started as the Greener Festival, something called Eighth Plate. Um, started in 2015 actually and Eighth Plate was a food reclamation scheme to salvage edible food waste from festivals, turn it into meals which could then be distributed amongst homeless shelters, food banks and generally people who needed a meal. Um, So uh, I think in the first year we collected something like three tonnes of edible food waste and turned it into several thousand meals um, with the help of an organization called NCAS, which is the National Catering Association. We work with them to do this because there are a lot of um, food safety regulations that we're not experts in, but they are. Uh Um, But it just gave you an indication of the scale of Of waste. Yeah, scale of wasted food, basically. So, and that's not all audiences, that's traders who, you know, it's not worth their while to take it back because they can't do anything, they can't sell that food on, um, so what are you going to do with it? It's often left. um, Things are improving and the contracts are, you know, much more focused on supplying enough food but not bringing in too much food so working hard and you mentioned
0: you mentioned there about contracts you know very often it's written into contracts so is there some education surrounding this whole idea of what is a good contract what is a bad contract how how should a contract be written up for those people who want to start running a festival or something
1: um well oh yes so this these are the contracts with suppliers now we um uh, there's something co- we could go on here. There's something called the circular event. Um, it's based on this new idea of the circular well, it's not that new actually the circular economy. So what we're saying basically is we need to move away from a consumerist economy to one where we don't have waste as such. waste is just another resource which we then turn into something else. So a good example is that food. So you have edible food waste. Well, it's not food waste. We've collected it and turned it into meals for other that's, people. That's incredible. Not so, um, you know, but so part of the supplying of these festivals is to do with all the things that you need to buy in to create that festival and the contracts with the suppliers. So this is not, we're not talking about the artist contracts. No, no, this is separate. We talked about the green wine. This is to do with the suppliers' contracts. And so things that we recommend um, thinking about is, you know, is this whole idea of the um, circularity built into the contract. Are people looking closely at the amounts of things that they're supplying? So is the festival looking closely at it? For example, power. Do they actually need the power that they the amount of power they're buying in? Um, we've we've found over the last few years, and this is across the industry, that actually many events have been overpowered for a long time, which is a waste of energy and a waste of their money. So you know, we're looking more closely at that. We're looking at more closely at contracts with um, food suppliers. Um, infrastructure suppliers, can we do the logistics of supplying infrastructure more, more efficiently so we're not burning the transport miles? Um, uh, is it ethical? So are there, you know, have we got ethical safeguards in, built into our contracts? For example, you know, people who produce things, is there any sign of exploitation? Where is it coming from? We've got fair, fo- uh, fair trade food built in, you know, that increasingly those contracts are including clauses which are about sustainability. You know, they're sent out of the contract. So that's what the issues are to do with contracts. Um, And then of course, importantly, it's whether having got those ethical and sustainable clauses into the contract, whether they're actually being enforced on site
0: got it yeah so, it. so that's you know, why you need the assessors it. on the ground just checking everything and
1: well just just, just pull yeah able to point out to the, the weaknesses um, and strengths. Some, yeah you know if you've got a contract that says that the trader should not be supplying bottles plastic bottles of water for sale and then you know you go on site and you see plastic bottles of water for sale you might point that out to the assessor and uh, in, to the organizer and say well so what are you doing about that it's in your contract with the um the supplier what happens you know this mm-hmm. accountability
0: contractor. really you're trying to what hold them accountable
1: yeah. yeah yeah are you are you holding them accountable yeah. Perfect. so there are all sorts of things like that yeah
0: well, Teresa, it's been a very interesting interview and very revealing from the point of view as a festival goer or as a concert goer, even, to think about all of these other things that happen behind the scenes, which not, well, I could say for myself, I didn't think about it until we met today and we spoke about these things. So, um, just your website again is a greener.
1: www.agreenerfestival.com.
0: That's where they can all find you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure just learning about all this.
1: Okay. Good to speak to you, Sylvia.